of our product is being built in China now than before the tariffs. The unintended consequences of a trade war and why the Biden administration has maintained a trademark policy from the Trump years. For Sunday, June 18th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Coming up, a new podcast explores the discovery of a hidden cemetery in Texas and how it forced the community to confront its history. I have a dream that one day these free men of neglected and exploited souls would be recognized for their hard works and contributions for Sugarhead. Plus, the latest in our Enlighten Me conversations, the bizarre experience of seeing a family ghost. I mean, it's not like you can... Uh open the yellow pages and call for a psychic or a seance. I mean, what do, what do you do? But first, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Beijing, where he met with his Chinese counterpart for talks described by both sides as candid and constructive. NPR's Emily Fang reports the two-day visit is aimed at re-establishing better communication amid strained relations between Washington and Beijing. Blinken met with China's new foreign minister, Ting Gong, who was previously China's ambassador to D.C. The two didn't take questions from the press after their meeting, but the two will have dinner before Blinken meets China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, on Monday. China has not confirmed whether Blinken will meet the country's top leader, Xi Jinping, before Blinken leaves for London. Among the issues Blinken hopes to raise in China are greater communication between the U.S. and Chinese militaries and diplomatic officials, and containing China's export of chemicals that go into making the deadly drug fentanyl. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Israel's government has passed measures to speed up settlement building in the occupied West Bank. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will move forward on a controversial plan to overhaul the judiciary. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Jerusalem. An Israeli official says the cabinet has granted new powers over West Bank settlement building to a far-right pro-settler cabinet minister, Bitzel El Smotrich. He seeks to expand settlements on land that Palestinians seek for their own state. Till now, top Israeli political leadership has had to approve every step in the settlement building process, and leaders sometimes tabled projects that sparked international controversy. Now, settlement building will require fewer approvals. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will no longer freeze a contentious plan to overhaul the judiciary. That is because opposition leaders have suspended negotiations to reach a consensus on the issue. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Police say one person died, at least 20 were injured in a shooting at a Juneteenth gathering outside Chicago early this morning. NPR's Amy Held reports there's no word on a motive. A group was gathered in a parking lot outside a strip mall in Willowbrook, Illinois, when shots broke out just after midnight Sunday. Eric Swanson is deputy chief of the DuPage County Sheriff's Office. There were at least 20 individuals shot. At this time, one victim is deceased. Victims were taken to multiple hospitals. Investigators are still trying to piece together what happened. But from Chicago to Charlotte, from St. Louis to Washington State, all are dealing with mass shootings this weekend, a reoccurrence that researchers say has wide-reaching consequences. A Kaiser Family Foundation study finds more than 80 percent of adults in the U.S. have taken precautions to protect themselves from the chance of gun violence. Amy Held, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Boston Public Schools Superintendent Mary Skipper says she does not want to put police back in schools. That's despite incidents that include a teacher being knocked unconscious by a student in a Dorchester school recently. Skipper tells WCVB's On the Record that the school's safety specialists work closely with the police department. And those safety specialists are now trained fully in trauma, in uh, de-escalation techniques, and so we use them in all of our schools as a way to build relationships with our students because frankly as a principal and certainly as a superintendent that's one of the mm. best first lines. Skipper is also rolling out initiatives including a peer mediation program to help stem conflicts in schools. Police officers have not been inside Boston schools since 2001. Communities across Massachusetts are holding Juneteenth celebrations this weekend, ahead of the holiday tomorrow. In Brookline, dozens gathered for music and a free cookout. Brookline for Racial Justice and Equity Chair Raul Fernandez says the holiday should inspire people to organize and advocate for change. No amount of celebration, even supported by the government, no amount of Black Lives Matter signs or you know, immigrants and refugees are welcome here. So no, no amount of that is going to actually lead to a more accessible, inclusive community. It's got to be focusing on policy. Fernandez says things like discriminatory zoning laws and a lack of affordable housing perpetuate racial inequality in Brookline and across the state. An investigation is underway in Malden after two people were shot inside an apartment building lobby. A woman and a man were wounded just after 2 this morning at the Quarry Stone at Overlook Ridge Complex. Investigators say multiple parties were involved and believe one man was being targeted. In sports, the Red Sox defeated the Yankees this afternoon 6-2 at Fenway Park. The two teams will do it again tonight. First pitch at 7-10. In the forecast, mostly cloudy overnight, upper 50s, partly sunny tomorrow, upper 60s. 67 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. With Secretary of State Antony Blinken in China this weekend for high-level talks, we wanted to take a closer look at America's relationship with that country, especially around trade. Made in America may be a catchy political slogan, but it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. So many things we use every day come from China. In 2018, former President Donald Trump launched a trade war with China, eventually slapping tariffs on more than $300 billion worth of imports. For many years, China has been taking out hundreds of billions of dollars a year and rebuilding China. It's time that we rebuild our country. Two and a half years into the Biden presidency, those taxes are still here. To understand why that is, I talked to policymakers, economists, and even went out to a factory floor in Minnesota. Right now, we're building a five-inch speaker. Dan Digri is the president and CEO of the Minneapolis Speaker Company, known as MISCO for short. The company makes all kinds of speakers for subway cars, drive throughs Hi, welcome to Wendy's. How may I help you? Even airplanes. Time for takeoff to touch down says two hours and 55 minutes. 
Misko was a storefront business started by Digri's parents after World War II. Four years ago, Digri moved the company into a spacious new facility that now employs nearly 100 people. We're very committed to American manufacturing of loudspeakers. So we built this big facility with a big factory floor. Digri takes me out to the factory floor that produces two to 3,000 speakers a day. But he says they could be making more. This is where I would like to build more production lines. He points to a large area of the factory floor sitting empty. This should be loaded with equipment right now. Well, part of the reason that hasn't happened is that we're spending our time finding alternative sources to China. That's because Misco imports a lot of its parts from China. And Digri, not China, gets a bill from the U.S. government to pay the import tariffs. He's on the hook whether or not he sells the speakers. We pay a tariff on every part of this speaker except for the magnet. And there's like 14 different parts that make up a speaker all have a 25% tariff. The 25% tariff on all these little parts adds up. But the strange thing is when Digri imports a speaker fully made in China, he only faces a 7.5% tariff. In many cases, what that meant is that more of our product is being built in China now than before the tariffs. Economists say that's the thing about tariffs. They have unintended consequences. Instead of manufacturing more products in America, Digri is now making fewer things in America. When Trump first launched this trade war with China, it was a shock to the economic system. The theft of American jobs and wealth has come to an end. Economists warned that Americans would pay the price. U.S. businesses complained they would lose out to foreign competitors. And Democrats piled on Trump for being erratic and haphazard. In the summer of 2020, our former colleague Lulu Garcia-Navarro asked then-candidate Biden about using Trump's tariffs to counter China. Who said Trump's idea is a good one? Some Some. feel that. Two or three people. Manufacturing has gone in recession. Agriculture lost billions of dollars that taxpayers had to pay. We're going after China in the wrong way. Biden is now running for president again on a vision of making more things in America. He highlights his subsidies to lure factories back from overseas. But he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of trade policy. And he doesn't talk about these tariffs. But he has kept them. Catherine Tai is the Biden administration's top trade official. I think it is important to distinguish between the reason why the tariffs were imposed from how the tariffs were imposed. It was done in a um, pretty provocative way with a lot of confrontational chest thumping, which I think uh, drew some concerns both internationally and domestically, and I'm putting it diplomatically. But the Biden White House is clear there are legitimate reasons for these China tariffs, like the coercive practice of forcing American companies to hand over their tech in exchange for the right to do business in China. The tariffs were ultimately imposed to redress that economic harm and to um, create a, a rebalancing in the economic relationship. So now if we fast forward to today, Mm -hmm. I think that the focus really should be on um, whether or not we still have this challenge with China, 
Um, I think it's fairly obvious that the answer is yes. The challenge is not just about economics. There's a lot of tension in the relationship between the United States and China around issues of national security, things like spying and Chinese aggression in the Asia-Pacific region. Still, critics say the tariffs are a tax on Americans, on products like coats, bedsheets, underwear, and utensils that ostensibly have nothing to do with national security. Earlier this year, an independent nonpartisan agency called the U.S. International Trade Commission found that American importers had borne most of the costs from these tariffs. So I asked Ty, why not look at the tariffs in a more strategic way? We are looking at the tariffs in a very strategic way. And our concern is not just American national security, but also to figure out how we can break our addiction to the lowest cost chasing of efficiency to redesign our economic policies. What is the distinction that you see between how you and the previous administration relate to China in the context of the tariffs? What we do share is a diagnosis that the U.S.-China trade relationship is out of balance. But I think that there are a lot of significant distinctions between our approaches. They have literally done nothing but follow our policy. That last voice is Bob Lighthizer. He was Trump's top trade official. They haven't put any new tariffs on. They have done nothing but follow our policy, yet they criticize the way we arrived at the policy. Still, it's not clear anyone but Trump would have dared to take the first step. It's kind of hard to put yourself back in the way we were in 2017. Everyone in town, right, in Washington was was against us. Lighthizer had been a skeptic of mainstream U.S. trade policy for years. He was fed up with the idea that China was getting billions of dollars a year from Americans while stealing U.S. technology. Something, he said, had to change. It was a message that resonated with a company in North Carolina. My name is Greg Prey. I'm the president and CEO of Columbia Forest Products. We make hardwood, plywood, and veneer that ends up in cabinets and kitchens. Back in 2017, the Commerce Department found that China was dumping plywood into the U.S., selling it at unfairly low prices. The U.S. manufacturers can compete if we're competing fairly. Uh, but we cannot compete if it's an unfair playing field. He says Trump's tariffs showed the U.S. government had their back. There was no criticism in our industry. In fact, there were cheers. And there were other tariffs on plywood, too. Prey says Chinese companies did change their behavior after all of this, but not necessarily for the better. They immediately tried to circumvent it by moving their products, even some of their manufacturing to other countries such as Vietnam and Indonesia. Across the economy, imports on tariffed Chinese goods have gone down. But that doesn't mean American manufacturers are getting all the benefits. Imports from Vietnam have more than doubled since the tariffs went into effect. Dan Degree says he's also turned to Vietnam. Vietnam is developing a loudspeaker industry. It's developing parts suppliers, but it's very new. You know, these supply chains just don't move on a dime, right? He's also shifted to Indonesia for some other components. But he's still relying on China a lot. Plus, he's in that tricky situation. He's paying a 25% tariff for parts from China, but only a 7.5% tariff on a fully made Chinese speaker. So he is now an American manufacturer, making a majority of his speakers in China. We've spent about $2 million on tariffs. If we had that money, you would see some very, very high-tech assembly lines set up over here. 
Diggory says he can pass on some of his additional costs to customers, but not all, because if he does, he won't be as competitive. So instead, the money has come out of Misco's profits. So in some ways, I feel like the tariffs put small manufacturers like us at the front line of that policy, right? We're the ones paying the tariff. We're the ones out trying to find new suppliers. We're the ones who have to deal with this policy, right? And I feel a little bit like a pawn in this big geopolitical game, and all we want to do is build speakers. But in every game, there are winners and losers. And the thing about these tariffs is that the rules are blurred because the game is not entirely about the economy. It's also about keeping China in check. Five or six years ago, the conversation was about costs and about whether the Chinese system was playing by the rules. That's Chad Bown. He's with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. The conversation has shifted entirely. It's not about that anymore. It's all about national security. The heightened tensions that we're seeing, you know, over Taiwan, military engagement, balloons floating over the United States, uh, things of that nature that we're really having to grapple with today. The Biden administration is currently reviewing the tariffs to determine their approach to them. That process is expected to wrap up this year. I asked Biden's top trade official, Catherine Tai, what's going on with this review? I would say that one key question that's really important for us to consider is what has China done in these last few years that would merit are changing this tariff structure. There's been a chorus of Republican and Democratic lawmakers who say China's behavior has not changed. And this all comes against the backdrop of the 2024 presidential election. So Dan Digri, he's not optimistic about change. It's all about what do, what should I say, what should I do to get me reelected. And you think removing some of these tariffs is not politically popular? You know, I hate to say this, but it would just get... Um, portrayed as being weak on China. And in a presidential election, there's often little political room for nuance. That's even more the case on these tariffs because they were Donald Trump's signature policy. And he's the current Republican frontrunner. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday with us. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens grown from seeds without pesticides, nativeplanttrust.org. And Gore Place and live music outdoors in the spacious Century Tent. Featuring traditional and classical music, Wednesdays in June and July in Waltham. Goreplace.org. Mostly cloudy overnight, upper 50s, partly sunny, upper 60s tomorrow. 67 degrees now in Boston. Red Sox beat the Yankees in the first of a day-night doubleheader, 6-2. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. Lines. Well, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Beijing for two days of meetings with top Chinese officials to reduce tensions between the two economic powers. He's expected to urge China to curb the production and export of synthetic fentanyl.
Israel's government passed measures to speed up settlement building in the occupied West Bank. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will move forward on a controversial plan to overhaul the judiciary. And in suburban Chicago, one person is dead. At least 22 are wounded after a shooting early today during a Juneteenth celebration in a parking lot that turned into chaos when the shooting started. There's no word on a motive. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead, live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is NPR. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. When construction began in 2018 on a new school in Sugarland, Texas, near Houston, workers discovered something shocking an unmarked cemetery containing 95 bodies. Now to a developing story out of Sugarland, where a construction site has turned into an excavation site. Crews working on a Fort Bend ISD building discovered an historic cemetery on those grounds. A new podcast from the Texas Newsroom explores how the discovery of the cemetery forced the city of Sugarland to confront its history. And it asks why those 95 bodies have still not been identified. Here's part of episode one. Two years ago, we set out to tell the story of these 95 people. Who were they? What happened to them? But it turns out that their story is just as much about them as it is about the people who've been trying to control them for over a century. These remains do not belong to anyone other than their descendants. They do not belong to you. You don't own them. You have no rights to them. Ultimately, this is a story about power. There just comes a point where, as a leader, you've got to say, this is what we're doing and this is why. Who gets it and how they wield it. By identifying descendants, now you're bringing more people to the table that may not agree with you. So let's really not find those folks. I'm Brittany Martin, an independent journalist based in Houston. And I'm Naomi Reed, an assistant professor of anthropology at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. And this is Sugarland, an investigative podcast series about the 95 souls laid to rest here and the systems that buried them, presented by the Texas Newsroom. ISD officials say it's still too early to know just who is buried here. But the Sugarland man says he believes he knows, and he says it's something he's been working to get acknowledged for nearly 20 years. That man was Reginald Moore. The system said you were free unless convicted of a crime, and so that's how they was able to get slavery back. Moore, who everyone affectionately calls Reggie, was impossible to miss. He was six foot two with a booming voice and the cadence of a preacher. When we started working on this series, his name was the one we heard over and over again. Mr. Reginald Moore. Mr. Moore. Reggie. Mr. Moore. Reggie. Reginald. Reginald Moore. That's because he spent years pushing the city of Sugarland to acknowledge its not-so-sweet origins. 
Near the turn of the century, Sugarland was home to the largest hubs for convict leasing in Texas. The practice of leasing convicts for labor was adopted across the South in the decades following the Civil War. Reggie would show up at city council, school board, and county commissioner's meetings to explain how black male prisoners were most often lent out to sugar farmers and forced to do the grueling work of harvesting sugar cane. Convict leasing solved two major issues facing white landowners at the time. First, it provided a cheap workforce to replace the slaves they'd lost. And second, it created an environment where they could keep treating black people as second-class citizens. Reggie believed the graves found at the school construction site belonged to those black prisoners who worked and died on local sugar plantations. And he'd been saying the same for years, long before their bodies were actually found. Every time he spoke publicly, Reggie wore this one t-shirt his wife bought him years ago on a trip to Atlanta. It's black with a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. stenciled on the front in gold. Reggie followed in MLK's footsteps. I have a dream that one day, these free men of neglected and exploited souls would be recognized for their hard works and contributions for Sugarland in constructing this great state of Texas in the Reconstruction era. And his message, like his shirt, was always the same. This city and this state were built on the backs of exploited Black men. And for that, they deserve our apologies, our recognition, and our respect. For Naomi and I, this story hits close to home. I was born and raised in Houston. I went to Texas public schools and graduated from the University of Texas. I've written for newspapers and magazines across the state. Actually, I've never lived anywhere else. But before these 95 bodies were found, I'd never heard of convict leasing. At first, I thought maybe that was because I was a white girl who grew up in a mostly white part of town. But... The more we got into this, I heard the same from all kinds of different people. It's a pretty glaring omission from our history books. It definitely is. I grew up sort of in the shadows of Sugarland, next door in Missouri City. Sugarland was whiter. It had nicer homes, better schools, the mall, better football stadiums. Missouri City felt like the lesser place to live and learn. When I grew up, I wanted to understand how kids on the other side of town understood people like me, kids from Missouri City, Black people. So at 28 years old, I started doing ethnographic fieldwork at a public high school there. For a year, I went to three different U.S. history classes and talked to 15-year-olds about what they were learning about race. I discovered that Sugarland has needed to have a race conversation for a long time. I've been talking about this place and how Blackness, Black people, and Black history have been ignored for years. So when Brittany approached me about doing this podcast, I was game. So we started where anyone researching convict leasing in Sugarland would start, with Reginald Moore. We'll move to item one, uh, public comment. Uh, those citizens desiring to speak the public comment have signed up, and I'd like to call you up. In the summer of 2013, the city of Sugarland was looking to invest in some new parks projects. Please introduce yourself, state your address for the record, and then you'll be given... Uh, three minutes for public comment. There were a few proposals on the table. A network of hike and bike trails, a festival site, and a sports park. Definitely not on the list. A memorial to convict leasing. But that didn't stop Reggie from showing up to ask for one. We'll move to the next speaker, Mr. Reginald Moore. Mr. Reginald Moore is speaking on our Agenda 4A resolution. Mr. Moore? Uh, yes, my name is Reginald Moore. 
I'm a historian preservationist, and I'm a former correctional officer with the Jester Units. His request might sound a little rambling, but that's just how he talked. And he opened with a pretty big ask. Part of the money out of the bond election, I would like for him to build a museum in honor of the convict lease system. He also wanted the city to start proactively searching for unmarked convict graves. So because there wasn't any archaeological studies, the concerns of where these people buried, but those homeowners like to know, you know, where these bodies are, are they living on grave sites? So I'm petitioning the city for archaeological studies on this particular property. Remember, this was five years before the graves were discovered, but Reggie just knew their bodies were out there. I've been petitioning this for years, same 12, 13 years, so I'd like to see this book done while we had a bond here and included on that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moore. Thank you for being here tonight. As Reggie said, this meeting wasn't the first time he'd made this kind of request. The way he comes on, because he comes on so strong, gives or gave, I think, some people in their minds sort of permission to dismiss him. This is Jay Jenkins, a white attorney originally from Iowa who also happens to be one of Reggie's closest friends and fiercest defenders. It was almost like people... They felt like they were dealing with a telemarketer or something that they could just dismiss because he's going to come back the next time and the next time and say the same thing. And so there's no point in really addressing it. We've learned that persistence was Reggie's calling card, and it wasn't limited to his activism. We officially met in 1998. We went to the same church, and we ended up in the same Sunday school class. This is Reggie's wife, Marilyn Moore. She's a whole head shorter than him and has the kindest eyes behind her cat eye frames. Even then, he was very passionate and he was, it seemed like he was in distress. <laughs> so uh, I just asked the class to pray for him. I spoke with Marilyn on a stormy afternoon last summer. Her house is on the very edge of Harris County, just a mile or two north of Sugarland. And I remember one Sunday, I came in late, and I had to sit next to him. And I could see him looking at me from head to toe, and it just got on my nerves. You know, why is he looking at me? Why don't you stop looking at me? <laughs> and I don't know the timeline, how much later it was that he called me. See? Persistence. He got my number from somebody in the class and called me and, and left a message on my answering machine and said that, well, I wasn't at Sunday school on Sunday, so I was just checking to see what happened. I was saying, yeah, right. So I finally called him back, and uh, we talked for a long time. But she still wasn't sold on the idea when he asked her out. He asked me about going out on Friday. I said, well, usually my kids and I, that's pizza night for us. I said, well, I have to see if I can get someone to stay with my kids. That was my, I thought I was going to get out of it. Right, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. can't find anybody. Right. I, I didn't look. But Reggie kept calling, and his persistence paid off. Six months later, they were married. Back then, Reggie was working as a longshoreman, loading and unloading ships coming into the Houston Ship Channel. It was a job he'd had since he was 18. That is, except for a short stint in the 80s when he was laid off during an economic slump. That's when he got a job as a guard at a men's prison in Fort Bend County. And it was there that he first started digging into the history of convict leasing in the area. 85 through 88, I think. 
Working in there and seeing how they were treated and those kind of things, it reminded him of slavery. When the economy rebounded, Reggie went back to his longshoreman job. But he kept thinking about convict leasing. To better understand Reggie's quest, you need to know a little more about this place and its history. Today, Sugarland is one of many desirable suburbs on the outskirts of Houston. But in the early 1800s, it was home to the hottest real estate in Texas. When the father of Texas himself, Stephen F. Austin, was doling out land to the state's earliest non-native settlers, he chose this area for his homestead. The Brazos River runs right through the city and south all the way to Galveston Bay. That meant the area had fertile soil, plenty of fresh water, and easy access to a major port. In this way, Sugarland is really proud of its heritage. There's First Colony Mall, a neighborhood called New Territory, Settlers Way Park, and neighborhoods and streets named Something Plantation or Colonial Something. But the identity this city embraces more than anything is right in the name, Sugarland. Sugarland, the city that Sugar built. Early white settlers found the land was great for cultivating sugarcane and spent decades growing and processing raw sugar, first relying on slaves and later convict labor. In the first half of the 1900s, basically everyone who lived in Sugarland worked for Sugarland Industries or its sister company, Imperial Sugar. Imperial Pure Cane Uniform Quality Sugar outsells all others in the Southwest. Ladies, whenever you buy sugar, please remember this refrain. Imperial Sugar is 100% cane pure cane. Imperial Pure Cane Uniform Quality Sugar. Yes, indeed. I can't tell you how long that song has been stuck in my head. Schools in the area used to tour the Imperial Sugar Refinery. My mom was a teacher, and one of my most vivid memories was tagging along with her in her third grade class on a field trip there. I was probably 11. We climbed like 90 sets of stairs to get to the top. I remember being so tired and sore because I was recovering from a broken leg at the time. I can vaguely picture big vats of sugar, and the tour was mainly about processing it. But I don't remember hearing anything about the people who made it all happen, especially before the refinery was industrialized. Yeah, growing up, I honestly didn't know there were other brands of sugar. We only ever had Imperial at home. It's got that royal blue crown logo on every package with since 1843 above it. It was here in 1843 that the first cane sugar mill in Texas was built. And thus, more than a century ago, cane sugar became the cornerstone for one of Texas' great industries, providing one of the world's vital products, pure cane sugar. That was the story we grew up hearing. It was a family-run sugar mill that blossomed into a thriving company town. But the middle part of that story always seems to get left out. It's the part that made the company town possible, that helped infuse millions of dollars into the Texas economy when it needed it most. That's the part Reggie dug into. Brittany Martin and Naomi Reed are the hosts of the show Sugarland. You can hear more at sugarlandpodcast.com. This is NPR News. 
Let's turn now to Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China. He was scheduled to go there months ago, but the trip was postponed after a suspected Chinese spy balloon was spotted in the sky over Montana. There has been very little senior-level contact between the Chinese and the United States since then, and expectations are low that Blinken's current two-day visit to Beijing will lead to any big breakthroughs. But it is a very important trip nonetheless. And to bring us up to speed, we're joined by NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruich. John, it is great to have you with us. Hey, Asma. So I understand that Blinken has wrapped up day one of this trip. And what do we know about how things are going so far? Yeah, we know that Blinken had meetings today with Qin Gang, who's China's foreign minister, his direct counterpart. The State Department says the talks lasted five and a half hours, and then they had a working dinner together. Mm. The State Department characterized the talks as candid, substantive, and constructive. Uh, They're very short on details and specifics, though. We do know that um, Blinken invited Qin Gang to Washington to continue the talks and that they agreed. They agreed to schedule a visit at a suitable time. You know, China, for its part, um, has been casting blame on the U.S., for the state of relations, the sort of dire state of relations between mm-hmm. China and the U.S., and questioning the sincerity of the Biden administration, really saying it's unacceptable to seek communication while taking actions that damage the interests of the other. In this case, you know, the top core interests for China are going to be Taiwan, where they think the U.S. is intervening and getting in the way, and the economy, where the U.S. has taken steps that China sees as designed to sort of thwart its rise. Um, it's not all finger-pointing, though, and scorn, which is interesting. On Friday, the day that Blinken left for China, Xi Jinping, China's leader had a meeting with Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft uh, and a big philanthropist, and really said that he had faith in and and hope in the American people, that people-to-people relations were the key to the relationship uh, between China and the U.S., and that there was scope for activities that are beneficial to both countries and both peoples. That's really interesting, John. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing suggests that there is a willingness to work with Americans, at least uh, on a people-to-people level on some issues. Exactly. Yeah, the door seems open. There is still a ton of mistrust, of course. Um, but Wang Huiyao, the founder and president of a think tank in Beijing called the Center for China and Globalization, thinks there's a real opportunity here in Blinken's visit. This visit really, I hope that it can really achieve to stabilize the relations. And also that can usher in a new phrase of uh, engagement, dialogue and exchanges. A new phase, he's saying. You know, Blinken's the first cabinet member of the Biden administration to visit China. Uh, the hope is that If this trip goes well, others will follow in the coming months and that by fall, the stage will be set for a a constructive bilateral meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping himself at the G20 in India. And then for Xi Jinping to visit the United States, he's going to be in San Francisco to attend an APEC leaders summit in November. Hmm. So, John, what happens on day two of this visit in China? Well, Blinken is expected to meet Wang Yi on Monday. He's China's top foreign policy official, a Politburo member. Uh, It's also very possible that he will meet Xi Jinping himself. Neither side has confirmed that that's going to happen, but that usually happens when Secretary of State visit China. Longer term, though, things get murky, right? If they can stabilize things uh, a bit for the remainder of the year, we still don't know what's going to happen beyond that. The sense is that, you know, the current state of affairs, the tensions are structural in this relationship. Also, next year, remember, we have a presidential election in the United States states. Mm-hmm. Taiwan has a presidential election, and, and those may undo some of the progress that happens between now and then. Certainly, there's a, a bipartisan sense that really both Republicans and Democrats here in the U.S. want to look like they are tough on China. Right. NPR's John Ruich, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour, and tonight a look at the chaotic situation at the southern border. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A majority of Swiss voters today approved a referendum that will fight climate change and sharply curb the Alpine nation's greenhouse gas emissions. Scientists and environmentalists promoted the law saying Switzerland is greatly affected by global warming and that its glaciers are already melting at an alarming rate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling on the FDA and Congress to work together to find a solution to the shortage of some 295 critical drugs. He says that includes cancer drugs and everyday generic ones. And at the weekend box office, DC and Warner Brothers superhero movie The Flash took the top spot with an estimated $55 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel, Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And it's time now to hand over the mic to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation in her series, Enlighten Me. I'm pretty sure I don't believe in ghosts. Now I say pretty sure because there is part of me that doesn't want to rule out the possibility. But I have heard others talk about this period of time after a person dies when their soul or their spirit hasn't settled into whatever comes next, and that person's essence feels close. I felt that for sure. Right after my mom died, she was in my dreams a lot, and it all felt so real that I woke up thinking she was alive. And then I had to go through a muted form of grief all over again when I realized it was a dream. And then there's the way my parents' favorite songs have come to me. I remember the first time I went into a grocery store after my mom passed. They were playing I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder. She sang that song all the time. And when I drove from my father's funeral back to my hotel a couple years ago, the song on the radio was American Pie by Don McLean. Whenever my dad sang that song, you knew he was in a good mood. So these things, these coincidences, experiences, they felt 
supernatural in a way to me, but straight up ghosts? Seeing spirits of those who've died? Is that real? Could that actually happen? I saw an elderly white man uh, who was half walking, floating through our bedroom. This is John Blake, and he saw a ghost that scared him and then changed him and how he understood his place in the world. John is a longtime reporter for CNN in Atlanta, and he's written a new memoir about growing up as a black kid in West Baltimore in the 1980s, learning painful secrets about his white mother, and yeah, a ghost. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to let John start the story. I'm a young black man growing up in West Baltimore, and I'm growing up in this infamous neighborhood. It's the setting for the HBO series The Wire, and uh, it was also the epicenter for the 2015 violent protests that erupted after a young black man named Freddie Gray died in police custody. So mm-hmm. there was tremendous hostility toward white people there, and I grew up knowing that I had this whole white family who rejected me at birth, including my mom, and I it wanted nothing mm-hmm. to do with me. You you gave us a sense of where you grew up in West Baltimore, but may I ask you for even more specifics? Can you tell me what it smelled like, what it hmm. sounded like? <laughs> That's a good question. It smelled like uh, sour milk because <laughs> I lived in this industrial area where there was an ice cream factory, a good humor ice cream factory right behind my house. So I would smell... Uh, Sour milk, I guess they use it to make chocolate and strawberry. Hmm. It was so it was a blue collar part of, of West Baltimore, but it was also a place of uh, what we call stoops. Everybody would sit on these white marble steps at night, yeah. particularly in the summertime, and talk, flirt. Uh, it was a very communal place. People would go on the corner and sing temptation songs, do op <laughs> songs. So everybody knew everybody's business because you lived next to one another. So you you could hear people argue, you could hear people laugh, you could hear people have sex, you know, mm. everybody's business is on, life. on the street. Yeah, yes, life. yes, yes. So as you mentioned, your parents weren't together. Your dad was raising you and your brother on his own, except not really, because no. he, he wasn't around a lot. A lot. <laughs> Correct. It was kind of a weird upbringing because I kind of, I felt like half of my identity had been amputated at birth. Because I knew I had a white mother. I mean, all I knew, my family told me was, uh, you know, your mother's name's Shirley. She's white, and her family hates black people. But that's all I knew. I had no picture from her. Mm. I didn't know the sound of her voice. So my father was the one who tried to raise me, but he wasn't particularly suited for it because he preferred being at sea. He was a merchant seaman. Mm-hmm. And so I spent most of my time, when my father was overseas, I spent most of my time in foster homes. Mm. So when did you start pushing for more information about your mom? I didn't dig for more because I was afraid of the answers. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to think about it. Um, I had, you know, as a kid, I had to conserve my mental energy. It was enough to deal with st- staying in these foster homes, one. Two, staying in a neighborhood that was steadily becoming more violent. Mm-hmm. Three, living as what I call a closeted biracial person, not wanting to tell people that I had a white mom because I was ashamed. Those, those were, that, I mean, that was a lot to deal with. That's a lot. Yeah, so I didn't have the mental space to spend a lot of times wondering about where is my mother. I mean, I would think about it, but I just felt like her, her family's racist. She's probably racist. They just don't want me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt. And one day my father just calls me into his bedroom. Um, the Price is Right is on television, and he just says, 
do you want to meet your mother? <laughs> you know, it was just like a bombshell. There was no preparation, no like, let me set you down. And I was just kind of stunned. But that was his nature. I mean, he oh. was this rough merchant seaman. He wasn't like a touchy-feely person. And I said, yeah. well, well, sure, of course. So three days later, um, I am driven out to the outskirts of Maryland with my younger brother. And we're driven to this like massive red brick building. It looked like the set for the Shawshank Redemption. And this is where our mother is staying. And you and you have no context for this. No, you don't, no you don't nobody's telling it. No, they just said, this is where your mother's staying. Okay. So we're led into this waiting room of hmm. this massive red brick building. And as we're waiting there, I hear people moaning in pain in these distant hallways somewhere. And then I hear other people just breaking out into hysterical laughter. And it's still not computing for us. Like, where are we? And then we see a hospital orderly escort a thin, young white woman out into the room, and she sees us, and her eyes light up. And she says, oh, boy, oh, boy, John and Pat, it's so good to see you. And she comes to us, and she hugs me. I don't know what to do, because I've never even used the word mom before. Mm. And then I'm hugging her, and I step back, and I look at her, and I begin to talk to her. And then it begins to hit me. I begin to realize we are in the waiting room of a mental institution. My mother had schizophrenia, a severe form of mental illness. I didn't make that discovery until I was in the waiting room that day in that moment. No one told us. And I think part of the reason they didn't tell us is because they didn't know how. Back then in the mid-'80s, people didn't know how to talk about mental illness. They didn't talk about it openly. It was a shameful thing. So I was ashamed of having a white mother. Now I had this other shame to contend with. I have a white mother who also has schizophrenia. John and his younger brother Patrick made regular visits to see their mom. Her ability to have deep conversations was pretty limited, but they found ways to connect, and they developed a real relationship. John also got to know his mother's sister, and during one visit with her, she showed John a photo of the white grandfather he had never met. And when I saw that, I just felt just chill go through my body and just goosebumps just on my arms. So yeah, here's where we get to the metaphysical part of this story. He recognized the man in that photo. When he was around nine, John and Patrick both woke up in the middle of the night to a frightening scene. I glanced over into the corner of my bedroom and there I saw an elderly white man uh, who was half walking, floating through our bedroom. And he was standing by my dresser And at first I thought I was, well, this is a dream. And I rubbed my eyes, but he just kept on staying there. And I just watched him watch. And when I awakened the next morning, I thought that was a dream. But then I talked to my younger brother, Patrick, and I said, did you see somebody last night? He said, yeah. He didn't see an apparition of his dead grandfather again. And then decades later, when he was in his 30s, he was married and living in Atlanta. And this time, it was his wife who saw the frightening thing. I awakened one morning, and when I looked at her, her eyes were just huge, and she had this look of terror on her face. And I'm like, what's, what's wrong? She said, I was awakened last night, and I saw this white man standing over the bed, looking down at you with this troubled expression on his face. And I tried to wake you up, and you wouldn't wake up. And at that time, I, I knew immediately who she was talking about, and I... I got a picture of my mother's father, and uh, 
I said, was this the man? She, she said, yeah. She said, who is that? And who, and who is he to you? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's my grandfather. I mean, it is such a bizarre experience, yeah. right? Like if we just assume, okay, right. let's, just, let, let's just assume that it was him, that it was like a spirit or right. a ghost or whatever. Let's assume it was him. What, what, why was he there? Well, that was the question I had. So I called up a buddy of mine. This is a guy who's a hospice worker who I felt like had a sensitivity to these type of issues because he had worked with people who were dying and he was a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And his name was Scott. I said, Scott, here's the story. What's going on? And he said, just think of it. The only stories you know about him are stories about his racism. This was the white man who called your father the N-word, mm-hmm. who wanted nothing to do with you because your father was black and died never knowing you. So the only thing you know about him is that he was just a racist, nothing more. Think about the torment that that might have caused. He could have had a relationship with you, but he didn't. And he, Scott said, I think this guy wants forgiveness. And I talked to a pastor who said the same thing. And he said, have you prayed for him? And I said, no, I never thought to pray for him. And, but that's what I did, I got on my knees. And I prayed for him. But see, that was only the beginning. It's not enough to just pray for him because I didn't know him. So part of my story is I had to get to know him. And one of the things I learned from getting to know him is that, in a way, I haunted him. He just didn't haunt me. It was like I I began to see that he was more than his worst act. And I think that was really healthy for me because that helped me also reconnect with other members of my white family. Did you give him, did you give your grandfather that forgiveness? Yes, I mean, I just, I knew what it was like to grow up in an environment where you absorb racism and you don't even know it, because that's all you know. I tell people, you know, a lot of racism is caught rather than taught. Nobody told me, hate white people. It was like in my environment, it was just part of my world. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a similar world in a different way. He grew up in a segregated white world. That was very common for men of his time to think that way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to know him, and um, I know I've forgiven him. I, I don't feel this, like, tension or anger when I think about him anymore. I feel more than anything, I feel compassion for him. There will be those who hear your story and think that this is some nice kumbaya racial reconciliation. <laughs> But the world is broken and America is plagued by all the structural racism and this kind of narrative, I can hear people thinking it, puts an unfair burden on black people to just forgive the racist white people in their life. Yeah, I'm very aware of, of those type of stories and, uh, and I, I, I can't stand those stories. Those are the type of stories, uh, there's a term for it, the magic Negro. You see that kind of character in the movies who... Yeah. He or she exists to make white people feel better about their racism. And those stories imply that, golly, if we just hug white people and uh, (laughs) we become friends, all of racism will disappear. And my story is not saying that. But what I will say to cynics is this. Okay. So I come from West Baltimore. And the only stories that come from West Baltimore about black people are stories about rage and despair and anger and racism. And I've been writing about race for about 20 years as a reporter. And I've covered Charlottesville, Rodney King, Ferguson, all that. 
And the only stories we tend to hear about race like our stories about despair and hopelessness. And I tell people, if we only write and tell stories that tell white people that racism is inerasable, that it can't be transcended, what are they going to do with that? Mm-hmm. What incentive do they have to change? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have to become better storytellers. I think we have to tell more hopeful stories if we're going to survive, because I feel like right now in this country, there's so many broken people who now believe that racism is embedded in our country, that people can't change, that it's a permanent part of being American. And I think one of the ways you deal with that is you have to tell stories to show people getting past racism. And if I've seen these white members of my family change in ways that I never expected, if I see myself change in ways that I never expected, that is worth sharing. Have you seen your grandfather again? Like, have nope. you seen the apparition? No, no. Mm. I, I joke. I like he might come back and say, you misquoted me on page 22. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I think that's, that, that, that is over with. So your mom, your mom died. Yeah, she died when I was ago, writing right? the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where do your thoughts go when you think of her now? How are you changed for knowing her? I tell you, um, they have really gone full circle because when I was younger, I was ashamed of her because she was white. And then when I met her, I was ashamed of her because she had a mental illness. But only at the very end did I feel pride, like, wow, I am the son of this incredible, resilient woman. Mm. Here's a woman who spent most of her life in mental institutions, away from her children, away from her family, was rejected by her community. And yet, when we visited her and spent time with her, she could still sing, she could dance, she could joke, and she would become mad at injustice if she saw somebody treated wrongly. And that she could still be that way after all that she went through speaks to a certain strength to me. And so I, I feel nothing but pride for her. I'm not ashamed of her. I'm proud, and I don't care what people say about her. She was an incredible woman. John, thank you so much for taking so much time to have this conversation and for just your honesty and sharing the story. I thought it was just a beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you, Rachel. The book is called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. It's written by John Blake. <laughs>